We're so pleased that you could be here today. And we'd like to start off, and I'd like to uh, start off with a big happy birthday for a person who uh, was here this morning. Um, and you all probably know Mr. Arthur Gutman, who was, is 100 years old. Well, that's pretty good. So as we honor and commemorate uh, Mr. Mencken and his 131st birthday, that would be Monday, September 12th, I think it's very fitting that Arthur is having his. That might be him calling now because he couldn't be here, but he knows we're talking about him. And also, today is Enoch Pratt's birthday, the founder of the library system, and he would have been two. 103 years old, so I think we're setting some records here. But today is special in so many ways. We are so pleased that the legacy of Mr. Mankin is being carried on with all of the programs and celebrations, and today's memorial lecture is uh, truly special because of our guest speaker. He is a longtime book columnist for the Washington Post, and received the 1993 Pulitzer Prize for criticism. He also uh, told me on the way up that that was the same year that his, um, uh, how do you say, the other person who was born in the same city, <laughs> fellow Lorraineite from Ohio, Toni Morrison, won the Nobel Peace Prize as well. So he said, that would have to happen when I get the Pulitzer and Toni Morrison uh, gets the Nobel. But I think we can say that with his memoir, an open book, and a four collection of essays, he graduated with highest honors in English from Oberlin and received a PhD in comparative literature from Cornell University. So without further ado, please welcome to Mankin Day, Mr. Michael Durder. Thank you, Dr. Hayden. Um, first of all, before I go any further, can you all hear me? Should I adjust the microphone higher? Okay, let's try that. Is that better? Is that good? How about people in the back? Can you hear? All right, if, if, if for some reason I drift away from the mic or something happens, you know, signal wildly and we'll make adjustments. You know, no point in just hearing, well, some sort of a drone. You know. <laughs> um, Usually I talk extemporaneously. I like just to talk with people. But this is a, a, a lecture that they will actually print, so I've ha I have a prepared text. But I hope it's still interesting, and I hope I can maintain a certain amount of eye contact with you. And I welcome questions afterwards. Um, but sit back and relax. You're probably in for about 40, 45 minutes. And, but I hope it's somewhat entertaining. Again, um, and, and I want to thank, you know, you know someone asked me again to, to show this. This came out, not recently, this came out last year, but it was a long article I wrote about Mencken uh, for the TLS pegged to the uh, Library of America's reissue of the six volumes of the Prejudices essays. They're a handsome set if you don't already own them. I, I highly recommend them. And I think it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a fun piece to write and in, indirectly or perhaps directly led to my being here today. First of all, I want to express my uh, gratitude to the Mencken Society and the Pratt Library for inviting me to come talk this afternoon. I'm honored to be here with you to help celebrate the life, work, and legacy of Henry Louis Mencken. I first became aware of H.L. Mencken when I was perhaps 12 or 13 years old. Back in the early 1960s, one of the three national television broadcasting companies, I don't remember which, began to program what was called Saturday Night at the Movies. Unlike the usual morning and afternoon lineup of old Charlie Chan mysteries, comedies featuring Hunts Hall and the Dead End Kids, or the adventures of Ma and Pa Kettle, these Saturday Night features would promote, present more current films, those made within living memory. One of them turned out to be Inherit the Wind, the dramatization of the Scopes Monkey Trial, in which the fundamentalist William Jennings Bryan 
and the lawyer Clarence Darrow debate the right to teach evolution in school. In the film, which remains far more timely than it should, the names of the main characters have been changed, so that Darrow, for instance, is called Drummond, and a rather snide reporter covering the trial is referred to as E.K. Hornbeck. Throughout Inherit the Wind, Drummond is constantly identified with the devil. But to my young mind, I judge the sleek and witty Hornbeck far more like the old serpent as he goes up and down upon the earth seeking those whom he might devour or at least make fun of. Only much later did I learn that Hornbeck was based on someone named H.L. Mencken. I didn't actually read any Mencken for at least another decade. At a used bookshop near the Binghamton bus station in upstate New York, I acquired a beat-up copy of the vintage Mencken edited by the English journalist Alistair Cook. I virtually inhaled it, reveling in Mencken's astonishing diction and dizzying rhetorical acrobatics. From that beat-up paperback, I graduated to the Mencken Crestomathy, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's one of those words one never knows. Uh, uh, and devour that too, again with much pleasure in its high-voltage prose and its swifty indignation about this sadly misguided world and its numerous hypocrisies. Here, for instance, is a typical passage from the Sage of Baltimore. Mencken is surveying the United States of his time, but some things never change. Quote, Here, more than anywhere else that I know of or have heard of, the daily panorama of human existence, of private and communal folly, the unending procession of governmental extortions and chicaneries, of commercial brigandages and throat slittings, of theological buffooneries, or aesthetic ribaldries, of legal swindles and harlotries, of miscellaneous rogueries, villainies, imbecilities, grotesqueries, and extravagances, is so inordinately gross and preposterous, so perfectly brought up to the highest conceivable amperage, so steadily enriched with an almost fabulous daring and originality, that only the man who was born with a petrified diaphragm can fail to laugh himself to sleep every night and to awake every morning with all the eager, unflagging expectation of a Sunday school superintendent touring the Paris peep shows. <laughs> Over the next few years, I gradually picked up one by one in various used bookshops the six volumes of Prejudices, the three volumes of Memoirs, and various other items of Menkeniana. I once even owned a fine copy of Europe after 815 in a dust jacket, but, to my, but my old friend David Streitfeld persuaded me to trade it to him for several lesser titles I can no longer recall. We all make mistakes. For all my admiration of his prose, I resisted Mencken in a lot of ways. He was contemptuous of so much, the lower orders, the ill-educated, most popular arts, his tone, too, always struck me as consistently arch. You could, I felt, be impressed by the showman of letters, yet he seldom inspired warmth or real affection. To my mind, the worst of all the lesser sins is humiliating another human being, and Mencken made fun of people all the time. Oh, there was no question that he was right about a lot of things, the, hateful, the hatefulness of censorship, for instance, or the artistic asphyxiation caused by Puritanism in art and literature, but he's also deeply inflexible. His standards blurred into prejudices. Later, as a would-be journal, literary journalist myself, I also realized that Mencken's prose, as rococo as anything by Sir Thomas Brown or S.J. Perlman, was literally inimitable. You couldn't learn from it. Anyone but a Mencken would find himself exhausted by attempting such a stream of bel canto arias which is why I found my own models for literary journalism in the quieter voices among Mencken's contemporaries. None of them will ever be enshrined in the Library of America, and most of them are now forgotten outside of certain clubs and coteries. With a couple of exceptions, Mencken almost certainly disdained them all. He's not alone. To those who nowadays remember them at all, they seem strikingly middle-brow. Who do I mean? 
I'm thinking of writers like the long-standing columnist of the Saturday Review, Christopher Morley, the Chicago bookman, Vincent Sterrett, and Clifton Fadiman, for many years the mainstay of the Book of the Month Club. In England, their contemporaries, their counterparts, were literateurs such as George Saintsbury, Desmond McCarthy, Raymond Mortimer, and Cyril Conley. No women, for good or ill, quite fit this mold, though Rebecca West, Mary McCarthy, Elizabeth Hardwick, and Bridget Brophy sometimes come close. But they are generally too abrasive, lacking the softer virtues of the men. For in their writing, all these literary journalists worked hard to be something that Mencken would have abhorred. They aimed to be congenial. Literature for Morley, Sterrett, and Fadiman is a form of companionship. In their essays, their goal is to sound affable and conversational, just one reader speaking to other readers, and they never condescend or lay down the law. In general, they aim to celebrate and appreciate rather than satirize and assail. They believed, in Christopher Morley's words, that literature should entertain, surprise, and delight. And good writing about literature should do the same. Their essays and reviews are consequently old-fashioned appreciations. Their deep love of books always shines through, and their ambition is to encourage others to discover the myriad pleasures of reading. Of these American men of letters, I am now most drawn to Vincent Sterrett, but the first one I read at length was Clifton Fadiman. I've told the story of how I discovered his most famous work, The Lifetime Reading Plan, before first in an essay in my book, Readings, and then as part of my memoir, An Open Book. And I won't repeat it here. Let's just say that through a kind of larceny, I acquired this book. The upshot, though, was that at the age of 14 or so, I had my eyes open to world literature. I still have the paperback that I acquired back in those... It's a, it's a neat story, but... Uh, <laughs> or rather the loose pages, now held together by a rubber band. As a teenager, I literally read the book to pieces. In five or six hundred word essays, Fadiman inspired, exhorted, or enticed his readers to try 100 of the world's best books. Sometimes he talked about an author's life, sometimes about a book's particular pleasures, often about its difficulties. We're talking about Clifton Fadiman. But he always made clear that reading a serious book like The Magic Mountain, or The Poetics, or The Divine Comedy, or the novels of Jane Austen, or the plays of Aeschylus, was more than intellectually enriching or spiritually uplifting. It could be an adventure. For me, that serendipitously acquired paperback might well have been emblazoned with Kipling's famous words from Kim, here begins the great game. That notion of reading as a great game, an adventure, has never left me. The modern critic Marvin Mudrick once said, we don't read for understanding, we read for excitement, and everything else follows afterwards. That certainly was my case, as it was for Christopher Morley, too. Like nearly everyone born after 1930, I discovered Sherlock Holmes in the Doubleday edition of the Complete Stories and Novels, a volume prefaced with an essay by Morley. In it, he recalls his own boyhood passion for anything at all by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Morley writes, One walked downtown to the old Enoch Pratt Free Library on Mulberry Street in Baltimore and got out a book, The Firm of Girdlestone, or The Captain of the Pole Star, or Beyond the City, or A Duet, or Round the Red Lamp, or The Stark Monroe Letters, or The Doings of Raffles Haw. For I specialized chiefly in the lesser-known tales and deplore Sir Arthur's tendency in his autobiography to make light of some of these yarns. As for the white company and the refugees and Micah Clark and Uncle Burnack, these were household words. It was quite a long trudge from Mulberry Street to the 2000 block on Park Avenue, and the tragedy often was that loitering like a snail, almost like the locomotion of a slow-moving picture, the book was actually finished by the time one got home. There was all the journey to do over again the next day. As this passage may remind you, Morley, born in 1890 and just a decade younger than Mencken, spent part of his childhood here in Baltimore, where his father was a professor of mathematics at Johns Hopkins. 
After I read that passage, I quickly adopted the same strategy. I would scurry home in the evening from the branch library nearest my home in Lorain, Ohio, pausing under each streetlight to read a paragraph or two of the Father Brown omnibus or Jules Verne's The Mysterious Island or whatever else had caught my attention that week on the shelves. Those were golden days and evenings. May I take just a moment to remind you, needlessly I hope, of just how much public libraries and the people who work in them enrich the lives of all of us. They deserve our continued support even in this time of straitened economy. How diminished American society would be without them. To continue, Fadiman and Morley taught me to look for excitement in any book I read, whether that excitement was found in its plot, ideas, or style. I've lived by this conviction. To my mind, a literary journalist should have tastes broad enough, supported by enough learning, so that he can, at least in theory, be receptive to almost any kind of writing. Probably not all. Oscar Wilde maintained that only an auctioneer could appreciate every kind of art. <laughs> what matters, above all, is to be sensitive to what an author is trying to do, to judge the work appropriately on its own terms, and not to expect a paranormal romance or an action-driven thriller to display you know, quite the same qualities as Henry James's The Golden Bull or the work of Marcel Proust. Fadiman, Morley, and Sterrett are sometimes called, with a tincture of disdain, Bookmen. I wish there were a better term, one that didn't sound altogether old-fashioned and so exclusive of graceful literary essayists like Agnes Replier. Still, it's useful to distinguish such writers from academic critics and public intellectuals. Professors and scholars typically write for fellow professionals. They often employ technical jargon or lobby for a particular approach to literature or expect their readers to be aware of an author's other works and the secondary scholarship devoted to him or her. Not so the bookman. The aim, his aim, is to introduce a writer or book to the public, to point readers to the neglected, the curious, the odd, the charming, the unfashionable. He specializes in enthusiasm, but therein, alas, lies the canker that will destroy him. Enthusiasm dates. Without strict care, a bookman can readily sound gushy, twee, sentimental, eccentric, or wholly self-indulgent. It's far safer to write a plain, even astringent prose, which is one reason why the plain and forceful Edmund Wilson reads better today than many of these lesser literary journalists who sang so rapturously of the adventures of their souls among the masterpieces. Mencken preferred the role of a public intellectual to that of a literary critic, and over the years his journalistic writing tilted away from books toward politics and culture. But the true bookmen generally preferred the deep, deep peace of their easy chairs to the hurly-burly of the soapbox. It's not easy to tell the political or social philosophy of a Vincent Sterrett, but his views about books and his own writing are, in his, in his own writing are clear enough. Books are, to me, the most important things in life after food, water, girls, and the usual catalog of imperatives. If it be true, and no doubt it is, that the proper study of mankind is man, it is also true that man is best studied in the books that he has written about himself. And all books, whatever their subject matter, are in essence autobiographical. Even all fictional characters, hero and villain alike, are in the last analysis portraits of the author. Wherefore, it is clear, or is it, that writers of books are what I have called them, the most fascinating people in the world. They fascinate me, at any rate, and I write about them and their works, believing they will interest others. My job, as I see it, is to communicate my enthusiasm for books to others, and to the extent that I'm successful, I am fulfilling my intention. In point of fact, I am not a critic. I have never been one. I am a student of literature who writes for other students, and it is in this role that I feel most comfortable. Only critics understand other critics. Everything I write is written to be understood. I am no mystic. I am simply a journalist trying to tell a story, and the stories I tell are about books and authors. To a large degree, and despite a few reservations, that has been my own credo as a reviewer and essayist. 
Starrett and Morley both stress the largely biographical and anecdotal approach. They're superb literary entertainers. In Ex Libris Carissimus, a volume reprinting Morley's Rosenbach lectures about book collecting, he says simply of his own literary essays, what I have hungered to convey is the human reality of literary creation. He notes that writers' lives are messy and disorderly, and those he calls the severe commentators on literature often forget this. And so Morley's work, like that of all the bookmen, is packed with the anecdotal, what those severe commentators would call the extra-literary, the irrelevant. For instance, Morley tells us of the pleasure he felt when he shook hands with, that English critic, with the English critic Sidney Colvin, knowing that the very young Colvin had once shaken hands with Edward Trelawney, the friend of Shelley, the friend who plucked the poet's heart from the pyre upon which his drowned body was being burned. Morley argues that stories about writers, all the marginalia and gospel publishing, represent what he calls the inside history of literature. That's sometimes true, though such anecdotes also appeal to our natural human curiosity and our overall sense of wonder at the patterns of life. For instance, Morley writes, another curious episode, perhaps one of the most curious in modern literary history, was the voyage John Galsworthy, this is the Galsworthy he wrote the Forsyth Saga, made in the ship Torrens, of which at that time Joseph Conrad was mate. I think the time was about 1892 or 1893. Galsworthy had planned a pilgrimage to Samoa in hope of visiting Robert Louis Stevenson and sailed in the Torrens, Conrad's ship. He never got to Samoa to visit Stevenson, but how amazed he would have been at that time if he could have known that the mate of the sailing ship in which he traveled was to become a writer far greater even than Stevenson himself. I might add as an additional grace note that Conrad later dedicated Lord Jim to Galsworthy and that Lord Jim was Mencken's favorite novel after Huckleberry Finn. What's more, <laughs> cue the Twilight Zone music, one of the speakers this morning, Peter Malios, is one of our greatest authorities on the work of Joseph Conrad. Bookman, and now, and I now obviously include myself, cannot resist the glamour, the siren call of old books and their writers. As I've suggested, most modern critics, not just a Mencken, tend to scorn such fan worship. But it serves a purpose. In Books I Love, a title that would never get by any modern publisher, John Kieran, essayist, writer about nature, and a sometime panelist on Clifton Fadiman's old radio show, Information Please, alludes briefly to Don Byrne. Byrne is pretty much forgotten now, though one of his titles, Messer Marco Polo, is frequently glimpsed on the fiction shelves of the dustier used bookshops. But in Books I Love, Kieran describes Byrne in passing as, quote, the gifted but troubled soul who stopped to let his secretary out of his fast sports car before he went off a cliff with it into the sea on the coast of Ireland in 1928. That's all Kieran says. Yet Byrne's gentlemanly courtesy, this final romantic gesture, by a gifted but troubled soul, immediately makes me want to buy Messer Marco Polo the next time I run across it. Perhaps some of you might feel the same now. Elsewhere in that little volume of lectures, Orley writes wittily about that essential sideline of the bookman, book collecting. He observes that in, in the Anglican prayer book, there is a magnificent passage which, by just transposing the accent, leaps to the eye of the book lover. You find it written there that, and he's not quoting the Anglican uh, uh, prayer book, but I'm going to say, say it with the transposed accent. The first collect for the day, instead of collect, the first collect for the day, the second collect for peace, the third collect for grace to live well. Morley adds that of that triple division of collectors, I hope the third may be our classification. It was certainly so for Vincent Starrett, who once affirmed, when we are collecting books, we are collecting happiness. Starrett was almost born in a bookshop in Canada, but his family soon moved to Chicago, and he is forever associated with that city. Mencken may have been called the sage of Baltimore, 
but in his later years, Sterrett was widely known as the Dean of Chicago Writers. As a young man, though, he wrote for various newspapers and magazines, including The Smart Set. Sterrett certainly admired Mencken. Quote, his name, let it be admitted, is the biggest in contemporary American criticism, not because he is able to pronounce it more loudly than his associates in the field pronounce theirs, but because he has had more to say that was genuinely necessary and straightforward and sound. However, Sterrett does observe that by the late 1920s, when he was writing, Mencken had won a lot of his battles, converted the general population to his views, and started to repeat himself. The public has caught up with him, argued Sterrett. Of course, Mencken had also recently repudiated his sanctification of Chicago, which a decade earlier he had anointed as the literary capital of the United States. He had then argued that Chicago habits of mind led to art and fiction that were fundamentally American in their character. Saul Bellow sums up this argument in the very words and rhythms of the trumpet call that opens the adventures of Augie March. I am an American, Chicago-born, Chicago, that somber city, and go at things as I have taught myself, freestyle. Early in his career, Sterrett worked on the Chicago Daily News and knew everyone from Ben Hecht, later a great Hollywood screenwriter and co-author of The Front Page, to the poet and biographer Carl Sandburg and the poet and novelist Kenneth Fearing, um, author of the classic thriller, The Big Clock. He's probably better known for that now than his poems. But he was always prowling, Sterrett was always prowling bookshops, discovering odd or forgotten writers and trying to bring them to readers' attention. His first published book, aside from the requisite slender volume of verse, was a little, little book in praise of the great Welsh writer Arthur Mackin, best known for such unsettling supernatural tales as the great god Pan. He also wrote about that proto-Mencken, Ambrose Bierce, often known as Bitter Bierce, largely because of that exceptionally cynical book, The Devil's Dictionary. The industrious Steris even compiled a bibliography for the then half-forgotten Stephen Crane. And like Mencken, he championed James Branch Cabell. Still, he also wrote about figures who are just names now, Haldane McFall, W.C. Morrow, Walter Blackthorne Hart. Stare was always, in the words of his friend Burton Rasco, quote, digging up the strangest books from attics and junk shops, secondhand book counters, the caves of Paris, and the antique shops of Peking, books you never heard of before, and writing about them in so fascinating a manner that you can't rest until you have read the same books. Rasco, by the, by the way, was himself a bookman, an early editor of McCall's, and the author of Titans of Literature, Yet another title you wouldn't get away with today. By the way, Sterrett did go to China, and he spent a couple of years in the Orient and, and prowling for books in Japan and, and, and Peking and, and China and various places. Let me repeat the last part of Rasco's quotation. And writing about them in so fascinating a manner that you can't rest until you have read the same books. There, in a nutshell, was what a bookman expires to do. When I came to work for the Washington Post, that ideal represented the kind of literary journalist I hoped to become. It's no accident that over the years I've continually urged people to read outside the bestseller lists, to explore science fiction, fantasy, crime novels, and children's books, to rediscover the literature of other countries and the neglected classics of the past. Apart from his fiction, for the most part, mysteries cranked out to pay the rent, Sterrett's books consist almost entirely of reprinted newspaper and magazine articles. These are, as he describes them in the preface to books and bipeds, quote, the notes and queries, the miscellaneous browsings, the little journeys and occasional discoveries. In a word, the private satisfactions of an incurable bibliophile. They are also wonderful grab bags of book and author lore. The best known, published by Random House with striking cover illustrations of secondhand bookshops, are Books Alive and Bookman's Holiday. In just these two volumes, Sterrett discusses, along with much, much else, Chinese detective stories, literary hoaxes, Sherlock Holmes's landlady, Martha Hudson, ghost writers, islands in literature, plagiarism, Mother Goose, and books suppressed by their authors. In this last piece, he devotes two pages to Mencken's 1903 volume, Ventures into Verse. 
After the Chicago Bookman discovered a copy of this rare opuscule, the wily Mencken persuaded Sterrett to send it to him in Baltimore, where it almost certainly underwent instant destruction. Books Alive and Bookman's Holiday make for ideal bedside reading. As the Algonquin Roundtable member Franklin P. Adams wrote in a winsome couplet, a loaf of bread, a jug of high-grade claret, thou, and Books Alive by Vincent Sterrett. <laughs> well, Mencken was a great reader and possessed a substantial library. Some of us here at the Pratt, I don't quite picture him out there on the streets of Baltimore prowling through the 10-cent bin at various used bookshops. Perhaps I need to revise that. Maybe the greater Mencken scholars here can tell me. By contrast, Sterrett once leased a tiny apartment for himself, then realized he had no room for his books, so he rented the room across the hall and installed his library there. He spent all his disposable income on books. He called his guide to collecting Pennywise and Book Foolish. And this obsession, among other reasons, eventually led to his divorce from his first wife. Ironically, he was compelled to sell his books as part of the settlement, <laughs> but immediately began collecting again. In 1943, he had to sell his, his second collection, a truly glorious one, in part to pay for his mentally ill second wife's hospitalization and care. I will make no comment about wives and bookmen. Not surprisingly, though, Sterrett gradually began to collect on a smaller scale all over again. It was in his blood. As a bibliophile, he had several passions, but chief among them was Sherlock Holmes. With his friend Christopher Morley, Sterrett helped found the famous Baker Street Irregulars, an organization of Holmes enthusiasts that has been going strong for more than 75 years, and of which I am a member. Sterrett's 1933 book, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, neatly assumed that the great uh, detective and his friend Dr. Watson actually lived. And this convention and the playful yet serious scholarship that goes with it provide the foundation of the BSI to this day. Certainly, Sterrett's Private Life of Sherlock Holmes is the one essential book for any fan of the great detective, after the 56 stories and four novels, of course. A bookman must, by necessity, be versatile. Christopher Morley wrote novels, starting with his charming book about a traveling bookshop, Parnassus on Wheels. Clifton Fadiman was a New Yorker critic, Simon Schuster editor, a columnist for Holiday Magazine, and as they say, a noted radio and TV personality. Besides his bookish essays, Vincent Sterrett produced detective fiction, a serious novel called Seaports in the Moon, tracing the fortunes of a vial of water from the fountain of youth. Dozens of introductions to classics, such as Wilkie Collins' Woman in White and Dickens' The Mystery of Edwin Drood. What is generally regarded as the finest Sherlockian pastiche of all time, The Adventure of the Unique Hamlet. A highly personal guide to the best-loved books of the 20th century. And lots of poetry most of it collected in Autolycus in Limbo, in Autolycus in Hades. No, no, in Limbo. I've written Hades, but I think it's in Limbo. At all, a Winter's Tale, Shakespeare describes Autolycus as a snapper-up of unconsidered trifles. Sterrett's poems are traditional and often verge on light verse, but I suspect that one of them is recited allowed as often as any poem in all of 20th century literature. The sonnet titled 221B, 221B, written during March of 1942, is frequently used to end any meeting of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, 221B. Here dwell together still two men of note who never lived and so can never die. How very near they seem, yet how remote that age before the world went all awry. But still the game's afoot for those with ears attuned to catch the distant view halloo. England is England yet for all our fears. Only those things the heart believes are true. A yellow fog swirls past the window pane as night descends upon this fabled street. A lonely hansom splashes through the rain. The ghostly gas lamps fail at 20 feet. Here, though the world explode, these two survive, and it is always 1895. I quote this poem 
both for the pleasure of it, but also because it underscores the inclination to coziness and dozy nostalgia that are often associated with Bookman. The harsh might call this pure escapism, and neither Morley nor Sterrett would probably disagree. Old friends proverbially are best, writes Sterrett, adding that it is to our favorite authors that we instinctively turn for solace. New books are, as it were, upon probation. There is in them, one suspects, more of entertainment than of comfort. But those to which a man or a woman goes back again and again are inevitably those which most comfortably meet the recurring need of his or her bewildered heart. Indeed. What, you may wonder, would an old-fashioned bookman like Vincent Sterrett or Christopher Morley make of today's digitalized book buying and blogging? About acquiring books online, I suspect he would agree with what an eminent modern scholar once said to me. That's not collecting, that's shopping. For Sterrett, the hunt, and the unexpected discoveries due to serendipity account for half the pleasure of collecting. The rich can acquire gorgeous bookish plunder, he says, merely by a nod of the head, by the scribble of a signature. But more often than not, the resulting acquisitions become mere museum pieces. Adventures, by contrast, belong to the adventurous. The great collecting thrills, he stresses, don't occur on the high road, but along the less traveled byways. The real treasures are hidden treasures. The true bookman recognizes that the happiness and profit is not principally in the acquiring, but in the seeking and acquiring in a field where no final goal is possible. On the other hand, I think Sterrett would have taken to blogging and online book forums in his last 20 years, Sterrett contributed a gossipy book column to the Chicago Tribune. This was comprised of short notes, a paragraph or a page, about bookish items in the news or various curiosities of literature. Like Christopher Morley in his Bowling Green and Trade Wind pieces for the Saturday Review, Sterrett clearly tried to establish a kind of conversation with his readers, sometimes answering questions, sometimes using their comments as springboards. This is pure book chat, inconsequential, yet deeply civilized and amusing. A general selection of these pieces titled simply Book Column, as well as a specialized selection titled Sherlock Alive, compiled by Karen Murdoch, are available as part of the 25-volume Vincent Sterrett Library, now being published by a specialty Canadian press, colorfully named The Battered Silicon Dispatch Box. Both volumes, like almost all of Sterrett, are delightful. Delightful. Now, isn't that a typical bookman's word? Real critics don't say delightful. H.L. Mencken wouldn't say delightful. Nonetheless, I do look back on the era of Mencken, roughly the first half of the last century, as a golden age for bookishness, or, in my more somber moods, as its last hurrah. Magazines like the Saturday Review, the Book of the Month clubs, literary columnists like Fadiman, Morley, and Sterrett, even that slightly misguided set, the great books of the Western world, all testify to the hunger for tra traditional learning and culture that was once central to American aspirations. Yes, these writers and institutions may have been middle-brow, obvious examples of mass cult, yet they also inspired people, including one kid from working-class Lorraine, Ohio, to dream of bettering themselves through reading and education. I miss those days in our era of twittering and rampant snarkiness and shallow showing off. But then I grew up in what was in some ways, certainly not all, a kinder, gentler time, one in which there were bookcases in living rooms and people dressed up on Sunday. Thank you again, all again for this chance to be part of the 2011 Mencken Celebration at the Pratt Free Library. I want to close by stressing that you honor here today an astonishing writer, one who seems inexhaustibly interesting, whose work rightly continues to draw new readers every year. H.L. Mencken has been luckier than my three bookmen, but then he was a far greater writer than any of them. That said, the easygoing Christopher Morley, Vincent Sterrett, and Clifton Fadiman are still well worth reading. The truly great authors can often seem more than a little imposing, self-important. Well, sometimes we just want to sit down for a chat and a nice cup of tea with an old friend, if only one we know from words on the page. Thank you.
I'm happy to, to accept, well, I'm happy for any questions about anything whatsoever, either about, well, about my talk, about my own books, about reviewing, about the Washington Post, or publishing, or the state of literature, uh, you name it, uh, this is your chance. Um, there is a microphone here, but if you shout out, I'll try and repeat the question. The question is, uh, I've said that I'm not a speed reader. How do I manage my time to read as much as I do? Well, I don't do much else. <laughs> That's partly true. It's not entirely true. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I don't watch television. Occasionally I will watch some television, but not very regularly. I don't go to the movies too often. Um, I've, you know, I, I've, I'm lucky in that I learned to read when I was four. I tell about the story of learning to read on my mother's lap uh, in an open book. And, you know, years have gone by and I still like to read. And to me, when I worked at Book World, or now when I'm at home and book packages, book mailers come with uh, review copies and the like, it's still like Christmas every day. Um, so my enthusiasm hasn't flagged. It's because I like books, because I like to read, because I have what I've described here as a kind of a bookman's mentality, where uh, you know, when I take a break from uh, reviewing and writing, where do I go? I hop in the car and I go to a used bookstore. It's, it's true. I mean, these are these, this is what I like to do. It's, it refreshes me. Um, so I'm just dogged in my reading. I move my lips while I read. Um, but that it, it also helps me to remember. I have a good memory for what I've read. I can't remember numbers or people's names very well, but if I've read it uh, in a book, I, I can sometimes cite you know, you know, long passages pretty well from memory. But not. I don't have a photographic memory though. Uh, in red. Oh. That opens a whole can of worms. I, th I think he would have a good time with them, whatever the case. Another question. Uh, here in the front. Um, I've, I, I confess to not having read Kenneth Roberts, although I own Arundel and uh, Northwest Passage. I remember seeing the movie of Northwest Passage as a boy when one of these summer programs where parents would pay a dollar for the summer and your child could go to ten old movies at the local theater each week. And all I can remember from Northwest Passage is that vivid scene where you discover the guy's been eating this Indian's head that he's been carrying around in a sack when they're all starving to death. But I've always wanted to, to read Roberts. Um, I know he wrote a book about writing, and he seems to me an interesting guy, and his novels are, are highly regarded. I am a fan of other historical novels, the uh, Patrick O'Brien, uh, Aubrey Maturin books, uh, George MacDonald Fraser's Flashman novels. Uh, a good many others. Um, so I hope that someday I will still get to Kenneth Roberts and discover that he was uh, somebody I should have read long ago. In the white with the black top? Well, I mean, he, he, did, he did champion a good many important writers, as we know, and his, his, his tastes were fairly Catholic. So he, he, he you know, I, I, well, I'm not denying that he, 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 he didn't do such things. Uh, and for that, I admire him. I mean, I made a slightly, no, I wouldn't say slightly critical remarks, but not so much critical, my personal feelings about some of his prose. But I still find it exhilarating to read, and I find his mind exhilarating to follow. It's just almost tiring to, to, to keep up with him. Uh, and, and, I, and I found that I, in my own case, that I needed quieter, gentler souls as my models. Perhaps that says something about, or maybe too much about me. Sir, in the... Suit. It's a travel, that's a novel. I don't know why it would be on a... Huh. Oh, so if you're going to certain parts of the world. Okay. Okay, gotcha. It is a delightful travel book. And one of my, my teachers at Oberlin actually wrote a book about uh, Innocence Abroad named Dewey Ganzel. Uh, his name and uh, yes, it's a it's a wonderful you know satirical funny. Uh, it's got you know packed with everything. It's long. You can sink your summer into it. So yes, it is it is a is a is a great travel book. I'm fond of travel books myself, but maybe they were only choosing novels that had a, a setting in another country. And since this this was nonfiction, so it was it was excluded. Then if they had to be fiction in another country that evoked that country, maybe. Um, there in the, the, the back, in the dark suit? Frank. There were three brothers, Frank, uh, uh, Christopher Frank and Felix Morley. 
They all went to Haverford. They all became Rhodes Scholars. And they together were the founders of the Baker Street Irregulars with the assistance of Vincent Steradover in Chicago. There was, um, I think it was Frank who devised the, uh, the quiz that you had to take in those days in order to become a member of the BSI. Um, when I first came, I was, uh, I've been a member of the Baker Street Irregulars for about 10 years now. Uh, in fact, I have a little book coming out next month about Conan Doyle. It's, it's a, part of it's about Sherlock Holmes, and part of it's about the BSI, but a lot of it's about Conan Doyle. It's called On Conan Doyle. It's coming from Princeton University Press, so keep an eye out for it. But um, the interesting thing is if you read the Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, there, there, there's a, a lot of M's in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Think of Mycroft and Colonel Sebastian Moran, uh, Mary Morstan, who's Mary Watson. But um, the other aspect, you, what you notice, the other famous M, of course, is Professor Moriarty. And if you read the stories attentively, it's clear that Professor Moriarty has two brothers. And when I gave, when I gave my talk, my first talk at, at the Baker Street Regulars as the distinguished lecturer, I wasn't a member, I played the game, as they call it, at the end. I said, you know, since Sherlock Holmes, as we know, survived the tumble into the Reichenbach Falls when he was grappling with Professor Moriarty and they both fell into the raging torrents below, and, but Holmes survived and went to Tibet on the, what they call the Great Hiatus and later reemerges in the adventure of the empty house. Um, what, is all, what is, you know, more likely than that Professor Moriarty also survived. But instead of going toward the east, he went west, and with his two brothers, the three of them, reestablished their criminal organization, but under the guise of, of a group devoted to honoring their most, you know, their greatest enemies. They, and they just, they, they merely slightly changed their name from Moriarty to Morley, and here we are today. <laughs> So it was all laterally worked out, and of course the, the members of the audience just ate it up. They loved it. <laughs> Next day I received in the, I was staying at the, the Algonquin Hotel, where they, they were sort of the hotel, the BSI. I got the, a little envelope in, in the mail, and I opened it up, and inside were five orange pips, which is a, or death, they are death threats in, in Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> and a note saying that I had discovered the secret of the Baker Street Irregulars and would have to be eliminated. <laughs> it was signed M. <laughs> So I was wondering whether it was, you know, the Moriarty himself or Colonel Sebastian Rand, you know, who was the, the best heavy game uh, uh, hunter in the British Empire of the East and was the guy who tried to assassinate Holmes or what. But uh, it's all great fun. Other questions, please? Here in front. You might want to wait till the sirens go by. Maybe they'll never go by. <laughs> Now, the question is, who do I think is the best writer of fiction now alive? Yes. Um, me, of course. Of course, my novel. No, no, no. My un unpublished novels. Um, that's a hard question. Novelists come in so many shapes and sizes and kinds. Uh, you can make an argument for almost anyone. I, I will tell you people I like that you probably don't know. Um, I think the writer James Salter who's only written a half a dozen books, is just an exquisite stylist and one of the really wonderful writers of our time. A writer named John Crowley, who writes fantasy novels usually, wrote a book called Little Big, which is one of the, the great American novels. Um, I've always thought that Russell Hoban, who is, um, is the only American writer I know who's written masterpieces for every age group, for little kids, he wrote The Bread and Jam for Francis, all the Francis Badger books that some of you may have um, read to your children or grandchildren. Uh, for slightly older kids, there were books like Tomby Captain Najork and His Hired Sportsman, which was first recommended to me by an Oxford Don, um, or The Mouse and His Child, and then his, his great uh, novel for adults, mostly writes for adults now, uh, which should have won the Booker Prize, Ridley Walker, which is kind of like Huckleberry Finn, written in this broken clockwork orange like English in a post-Holocaust England. But he's a marvelous writer, wonderful writer. Um, and, and there are lots of, of, of such figures uh, in the world today. Um, as I say, one of the things that I try to do as a writer and a reviewer is to, to urge people to, to look outside the obvious 
uh, big names, trade names. I've, I wrote a piece for Book Forum recently uh, against the bestseller list as a restraint of trade because, you know, you get people like James Patterson and Stephen King and they're on year after year after year and other people don't have a chance. I said my, my, my recommendation was that every writer should be allowed to be on the bestseller list once. Whatever book it is, then you could put on all your subsequent books the best-selling author, blah, blah, blah. But that, that would free up the bestseller list so other people could come on to it. <laughs> uh, let's go way in. Is there anyone way in the back that I'm not seeing? Perhaps not. Okay. Um, right here. He's saying that the Mencken might well be in agreement on some of the economic and political ideas of the Tea Parties, but certainly not in their religious views. And I, you know, that seems um, certainly the second part is obviously would be true. Um, yes, sir. Well, there are probably here are people who know these things far better than I. I've read biographies of the Menken, of Mencken, and so far as I understand, he was, you know, quite sympathetic at least initially to uh, anything that was Germanic. I mean, he was a great Teutonophile um, and you know, loved uh, you know, German music, uh, uh, philosophers like Nietzsche, and was quite sympathetic to German culture in general. Uh, later, I think his, uh, his views altered, but um, uh, this was something that got him into a certain amount of disrepute uh, as the 30s and 40s went on. But uh, that's my general uh, understanding. But um, as I say, there, there, there are doubtless others here who can address that more uh, accurately than I can. Yes, sir. Well, uh, Mencken was certainly an, uh, helped introduce Nietzsche and was a, uh, an advocate. Interestingly enough, I mentioned Clifton Fadiman who only went to high school but learned French and German in, in New York high schools. And Fadiman's first books, among his very first, when he was a very young man, and the, 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 were two translations, or a trans, one, or, one or two translations from Nietzsche. Um, but um, I don't think that generally Mencken is thought of in any way as a Nietzsche scholar. He may be occasionally looked at as a, as a curiosity, but Nietzsche studies is so, so wide-ranging, so abstruse, so complex these days, there are multiple translations. There are scholars who've been thinking about him and arguing about him for so long that, um, um, as so often the case, those who, who, who you know who just start the ball rolling, they seem like little you know babies compared to the, uh, to the the people who think about Nietzsche today. That said, I have not read you know the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, Lincoln's book. Next next door, right there. What do I think of the future of the book? <laughs> um, that's a tricky well, not, maybe not a tricky question anymore um, in general I mean I, you have to divide that question there's the future of literature of the written word and there's the future of the physical written book the kind of book we open like this for, you know, for, the, for the written word for poetry, for fiction for all forms of literature I mean, there's no question that it will survive, it will flourish as always. It's important to our, our spirits, our lives. It's part of us. We have art so that we will not perish from the truth. Um, and so that's, that's not the worrisome part. The, um, the book, though, I don't know. I would be surprised that if, if in 30 years uh, the next generation will find the book as central to culture as it has been for, I think, probably most of us in this room if not all of us. I mean, for me, growing up as a you know, poor working-class kid, books and reading were the way out. Um, now, you know, kids find other ways. Computers themselves are, are almost more key than, than book learning uh, or bookishness. Um, I think there are dangers. Um, as when I, I've, I've, I've thought about this, and it seems and observed young people using computer screens to read, and some older people as well. And it strikes me that what they, 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 they skim through things. They look for facts. They look for answers to questions. Computers are great for answering questions. They're information retrieval systems. But they don't encourage the kind of slowness, the kinds of acts of attention, the kind of, of uh, you know, interaction in which you, you think about every sentence and with, if you have a book in your hand, perhaps mark up the margin or, 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 
or you know, make your own comments on what the writer has said. They, you know, if you if you watch, you know, high school kids doing research for reports, they just go from link to link to link, looking for the for the the answer or the points they want to make, losing the context often, not bothering with the larger book or which it's part. The upshot of that, I think, is a danger that our, the whole level of culture will become much shallower, much more meretricious, brittle. Uh, this is almost the vowing we now have on, uh, of an online culture of, of showing off, I mentioned, snarkiness, as they say, and, and uh, you know, the kind of, you know, you do outrageous things to draw attention to yourself, to get hits. Uh, that aspect of, of online culture is what troubles me, that uh, we will simply lose the, the ability to, to sit quietly in a room and, and, and read for hours after hours a book. Um, and I may be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Um, you know, certainly we we've now have an, you know, increasing use of Kindles and e-books of the like. People seem to be using them, seem to like them. Maybe it will, it will lead to a rebirth of, of, of reading. But I, I worry a little bit. I mean, I think that there is something in human beings that responds to the physical. To, we like touch, and we touch books. We are engaged with them, a physical object. In a way, you don't engage with the screen. A screen is sort of abstract. Also, screens tend to reduce things so that they all look alike. Whereas you know you and you know you read you read you read uh, Philip Marlowe hard-boiled mysteries you want to read them in paperbacks with leggy blondes on the cover, you know if you read Henry James you want a big you know stately New York edition or something they always seem right. Whereas on on a, on a Kindle or something they both kind of look alike. That seems wrong somehow to me. Um, but who's to say? We'll find you know if we live long enough we'll find out. Um, I'm going to look further to the back. Is there anyone in the second half of the room I am not seeing? All the question people are in the front. You guys are all shy there in the back. Yes? Do I get a chance to choose the books I review? Well, I've been writing about books for the Washington Post, but I also uh, for 30 years. And at this point, I'm now, I took, I took one of the first buyouts. I was the youngest person eligible to take a buyout eight years ago, taking a contract to become a freelance writer. So I write now on Thursdays because of when they dissolve Book World. I only, I'm only on Thursdays, alas, in style. Yeah, well, I, read, I, re, I review every Thursday. Um, I, have, I have constraints, space constraints because of style. I've had to learn to live with over the years. But I, in, by making up, I write for the, you know, the TLS or the New York Review of Books and uh, lots of other places as well. I probably write as much for other places as I write for the Post these days. Um, at the Post, though, I probably choose 80% of the books I review. My editors will ask me to, to write about certain, certain titles from time to time, and I usually say yes because they usually say yes when I make requests. For when I write for the other places, they generally suggest books for, to me. And unless I have good reason, I will usually say yes, but sometimes I'll say no if it doesn't interest me. Um, let's see if I'm overlooking anyone. You, you, have, I asked, have you had a chance yet? Okay. Oh, yes. I do. The question is, he's made the shift from going to use bookstores to buying online, and do I want to berate him? Um, I would have to berate everybody probably in this room if I started on you. Uh, but I think it is, for some of the reasons I suggested uh, when, when I talked about Sterrett's view, that you know, buying online really is a kind of, it, 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 certainly, it certainly has been useful if you are a scholar or if you have a project and you need to acquire the books in order to write something else or to do, do research, because now they're easily available. If, if, you're, if you're a collector and need to fill in gaps, obviously you now have access to all the world's Secondhand books and new books, uh, and you can readily do that. Um, but what is lost really is that the, is the whole booking pleasure of serendipity of going into a, you know I walk into a used bookstore most of the time, and I'll walk out with a box of books, and I and almost all of those books are books I didn't expect to be buying when I walked in. I see them on the shelf, I pick them up, or I'm reminded, oh yes, I read something about that. You know, next time I walk in and I see Messer Marco Polo, I'll pick that up because 
of this little anecdote about Don Byrne, see what, what the writer of, you know, is like. Um, and those pleasures are much, much harder to, to, to duplicate online, um, if at all. It's, almost, it's somewhat the difference between, uh, in a library, between open stacks and closed stacks. Um, you know, if you go, you wander the open stacks, you, you can see all the related books to a subject or an author or that, that interests you, and you'll find things you didn't know you wanted to look at. Whereas if you just relied on the card catalog, you would probably never know to pick up that book. Sir. Michael, let's make this the last question. Yes. Oh, maybe this one and one more, just so that everyone has one more. You mentioned something about the card and the message. Yes. The question is really a comment about the, the division between what's usually called art for art's sake and what you might call um, art with a purpose, committed art, art with a message. Um, Mencken obviously had um, favored, in, in, at least in much of American literature, art with a purpose, art with people like Dreiser, for example, we think of. And yet, at the same time, he loved Cabell, who was certainly not a writer with any obvious message except perhaps a certain kind of coy sexual liberation that you get in books like Jurgen. But it was a fantasist, a fantasy writer. So he had both aspects. I think that, um, I mean, you know, you know, the House of Fiction is, uh, is, a, is a mansion with many rooms in it. And I, I think it's wrong to, to, to say that all novels should sound like Zola or Frank Norris, or Theodore Dreiser, or James T. Farrell, or John Steinbeck, people who wanted you to come away having learned something about the world and wanting to change your opinions and your views. If, if that's not done with care, if you don't have enough art, you obviously fall into propaganda, to a, a, you know, tendentiousness, to you know, um, the kind of novels we used to make fun of, the Soviet novels about you know, a girl and her tractor. Um, and... You know, uh, so that uh, you, you have to be careful of that. On the other hand, of course, art for art's sake, the aesthetics, the, the sort of thing that goes, goes back to people like Pater, or I mentioned even Wilde, the fantasy ecla, where art is so wholly removed from life, it becomes simply a beautiful object. That also has its dangers. It becomes merely, you know, prettified. Uh, it becomes just a, just a uh, something that a connoisseur can contemplate, and, and, and it loses its, its connection with the, the blood and vitality of, of daily human life. You, you've you've got to do both. You need both. Those are the two extremes. The best books manage to do something of each, and uh, certainly uh, 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 great novels do. All right, we have one more question, but I think we'll, we'll do the man in the yellow shirt. I'm sorry. <laughs> Where are the Mencken's of today? Well, you probably don't have anyone who has quite the cultural uh, effect of, of Mencken, who was, you know, when it is, uh, at one point a god to the younger rising generation and a scourge for, the, for their parents. Um, that doesn't exist. You certainly have, you know, controversial and, and colorful uh, journalists. I know that in the past you've had... Uh, Christopher Hitchens here, who's uh, well known for being contrarian, would uh, like to be thought of as writing in that tradition. Um, you have, you know, any number of people who uh, take perhaps unfashionable views and write strongly polemically. You take Roger Kimball, an editor of the New Criterion, who's very conservative, who writes extremely hard-hitting and persuasive editorials about views that if you're you know, liberal, uh, you would you disagree with. I dis I know Roger, and I disagree with almost everything he writes about culture and politics. But I like him anyway. He's fun to read, um, and I mean, I have a piece in the New Criterion this this month on Stephen Crane's poetry. But I would only write about things like that. I wouldn't write about politics in that. <laughs> um, and but you know, the 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 the, the, the access to um, an audience has changed. In the past, you know, when we, we were growing up, you know, people of, of a, at least of a certain class would all buy certain magazines and newspapers. Everyone would, would you, know, you know, if you were a college professor or anywhere in the country, you'd read the New York Times, the New York Times Book Review. Um, people would subscribe if they were in the middle class to the Saturday Evening Post and Life and Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report and any number of magazines, some of which still survive in a much diminished way, but they do not 
have that central focus of culture for us in a way. Not everyone reads them anymore. That, that, that is being usurped by an online world to some degree, but even there it's much more wide open because there's so much available on the internet that nobody has a common meeting place there either. So I think it's much harder to affect um, culture and ideas in the way that Mencken did when everyone tried to read him, wanted to read him. Um, nowadays we have the, the, the most powerful medium is social networking, as it's called. And this has all kinds of dangers as well as possibilities. It's hardly something you would want to count on as you know, a, a basis of, of making sound political, cultural, artistic judgments. Well, I'm told that we should stop the questions. I will be around. I would be happy if you would like to, you know, come talk to me afterwards privately. Uh, I understand some of my books are available. I'd be happy to, to sign them, describe them. Uh, my books are even more fun than I am, a lot more fun. And, uh, and you should definitely not go home without one or two or more. They make great Christmas presents. And thank you so much. <laughs>